Well, let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, as we come to the last installment, so to speak, upon the eighth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Let's read verses 35 through 39, because they basically are saying the same thing as far as the theme itself is concerned. We're just going to deal all of this with one big chunk tonight. Verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we have seen several things in looking at chapter 8, Paul has set forth, of course, the grounds of our security and our assurance in the plan and in the purpose of God. We see that especially in verses 28 down through verse 34. I won't take the time to review that, but we do see the importance of it. This is, as it were, the groundwork of which Paul is going to be finishing off here in verses 35 through 39. This also shows us something of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us, and in our steadfastness in it as far as God's part is concerned. In other words, the things that are found in verses 28 through 34 are the products or the fruit of God's love. He didn't uh, love us, or He didn't do these things in order to love us. These things are so because He did love us. In other words, Christ didn't die in order for God to love us. He had already loved it. That's why He sent His Son to die for us. So this stuff here we see in verses 28 through 34, excuse me, are really the fruits of His love. We are the foreknown, as we see in verse 29. We were the foreknown of God, that is, loved of God. We are the called there in verse 28. God is for us there in verse 31. He sent His Son for us. That's verse 32. There's no charge because of Christ doing what He did that can ever be laid against us because He did those things as we see in verse 35. Thus, in verse 34 then, nothing then is going to condemn us. Christ has died. He has risen from the dead. He is at God's right hand. And He makes intercession for us. In fact, it is only for us, that is, the believer in Christ Jesus, the elect of God. All of this, as I said, is the fruit of the everlasting and eternal love of God to or toward us. And so for us to further understand this, or Paul to help the readers to further understand this, and thus us too, he wants us to see something of the sureness now of this love. He goes on to say in verses 35 through 39 what he does. In other words, it's great that we see all of this in verse 28 through 34, but he's concluded here, this is not enough. You need to understand even further now that there is absolutely nothing that will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Once God has loved you from all eternity and He has done all of these things for us, you can be sure then 
that nothing will ever separate us from that love. Nothing. Not a thing. There is absolutely nothing as God's love is placed upon us that will ever remove that love from His people. And again, you've got to remember, this is set in a time when people were suffering. The brethren were suffering greatly for the testimony of Christ. And this certainly then would have been very good news to them. To hear that no amount of tribulation, no amount of sorrow, affliction, that stuff we were talking about this morning, would ever separate us from the love of God. And so Paul deals with this now, beginning in verse 35. And we see the question then right forth. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he begins speaking here of Christ, because that's obviously in the immediate context, the one who died for us, the one who uh, is risen, the one who is sitting at God's right hand, and the one who is making intercession for us. Christ loves us too, or he would not have died. It's not just a matter of God loving us, that is the Father, but in reality it's the Lord Jesus as well. And Paul had the inclination, he could have put the Holy Spirit in here as well. The whole triune God it loves the people of God. But he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That love that caused him to do what he did towards us and for us, as well as the eternal love that he had upon us, who shall separate us from that? What a question. In light of verses 28 through 34, it's a good question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This just adds again another reason as to why we should feel secure, not in our carnal security, but in that everlasting covenant that God has made for us in the love of Christ. Well, what's the answer? Well, a short answer would be nothing and nobody. And that's how Paul puts it. But he expounds it more than I just did. The question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And all in light of all that he said, from again, verse 29 through 34, in light of all of that, who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? If he has done all of this, what more could separate us? Now, his answer, of course, in short form is no one. But let's expound it. Verse 35b, or there, it says, shall tribulation. Notice he brings in some things here to show us God's nothing will do this. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He says, will any of these things bring a separation of Christ's love to us? Shall they do it? Is there something within the nature of tribulation? Is there something in the nature of distress and persecution and famine or nakedness or peril or sword that will somehow separate us from Christ's love? Well, the answer is no. There is nothing within the nature of these things and the characteristic of these things and the carrying out of these things, the things that we ourselves would go through. These are put here, brethren, to show us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. So when we go through tribulation, will that separate us? No. When we go through distress, will that? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? Sword? No. None of these things, he says, will separate us from the love 
of Christ. Again, all of this is said in light of what has been said previously. Just in case we've missed the great doctrines of verses 28 down through 34, he wants you to recount here, nothing shall separate you. You see, verses 28 through 34 is more theological, isn't it? Great theological truths, doctrine. But beginning in verse 35, he gets into some everyday affairs. It's like, well, yeah, I know biblically God loves me. And we, we have that kind of a notion. Yeah, I know theologically that's true. I mean, I hear it from the pulpit. As I'm a believer in Christ, I can certainly say that He loves me. Uh, but yet, when those day-to-day fears and doubts and trials and persecutions and tribulations come, then that's when the doubts begin to bring forth. And Paul here wants to speak to us both in the theological realm and in the practical realm. Both theologically and practically, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Isn't that great? We all go through trials. Who doesn't? We mentioned that this morning, that we all fall into diverse temptations. There's all kinds. Here's some right here. There's tribulation, there's distress, there's persecution, there's famine, there's nakedness, there's peril, there's sword. But yet, none of these things will separate us from the love of Christ. Listen, brethren, if I sins didn't do it, neither will these things. You say, oh, well, he had to make an atonement for them. That's true, he did. And he did that while we were yet sinners, you remember. And he did that while we were yet enemies. He, yet, he did that while we were yet without strength. So even our sins, as we were in Adam, fallen with him as he stood as our representative, fallen in our own persons with the sins that we've transgressed. Read Romans 3. And it shows us the great catalog of sins against us. Yea, the whole law speaks against us. And yet, that did not separate us from the love of Christ. So why then would tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Again, we have to screw this kind of things into our thinking. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And then notice verse 36. He actually quotes a scripture. And the scripture that he quotes is Psalm 44. And it's not just a scripture that he quotes to show, yes, yeah, saints have, have persecuted or have been persecuted, uh, though that's true. He, this is David speaking here in Psalm 44 and verse 22, where he says, Yea, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But, and I, this is what I believe, according as uh, Haldane also teaches here in his great commentary, this was a um, prophecy regarding us that David was speaking about. So he's pulling here a prophecy showing to us what we're like. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. This is stated in order again to back up what he has just stated in verse 35. These persecutions, these tribulations, these distresses, these famines, these nakedness, these perils, while they may be new to us, And they may come upon us on a regular basis. I'm telling you here, he's saying, this is known of old. Even from the David's time. He knew this was going to take place. 
Christ knew that his people would have tribulation. Christ knew they would have distress. He knew they were going to have persecution, famine, and so forth. He knew we would be like those who were killed all the day long, like sheep, just as he was. And yet, does that lessen Christ's love to us? No. You see, we can't see into the future, but He can. And as He appears, and as He looks, excuse me, into the future, and He sees that His sheep and His people are persecuted on a regular basis for, for the reason that they love Him. But He says, this does not remove my love from you, though. See, He already knew all this. It was prophesied of old. So neither of these things. Then notice verse 37. Here we see the no. Or it's nay, but no here. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So, can these things of verse 35 separate us? No. Christ knew it beforehand, verse 36. So Paul says, nay. Nay. All these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Two things here. Not only would his love not be lessened and leave us, but because of his love, that, that this seems to be the gist of this, we become more than conquerors in these things. The word more than conquerors has the connotation, you've heard of what they call hyper-Calvinist, somebody who... Obviously, is more Calvinistic than someone else. That's a hyper-Calvinist. Well, it's the idea here. He's not using the word Calvinism. But the word, the phrase here means hyper-conquerors. We go beyond the mere victors in this life, those who have the armies and the great kings who triumph. He says we do more than they do. We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. So, no... Verse 35 and 36, these things won't separate us. In fact, in these things, we become more than conquerors because of Christ's love. We conquer over all of these things. You see, these foes of tribulation, distress, and persecution and so forth will not vanquish us. Rather, in consideration of Christ's great love, we go over them. We triumph. And if they killed us in the end, what have they done but brought us unto heaven's gate? Have they done us any harm then in that sense? They've made us populate heaven. So what a blessing. We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Now again, this all has to be taken into the context of what The Bible sees as conquerors, not what we or the world perceives as conquerors. The Caesars, the Alexander the Greats, those are fellows that we in history or have been seen in history, we study and we think, wow, yeah, they are. They were great men. They were great conquerors. They were great leaders who triumphed over whole continents. We think of America, who pretty well can run things if we wanted to. But in God's view, we are more than all of that. More than conquerors. 
Because those fellows can fail according to God's decree. We won't. Because according to God's decree, it's already finished. We're already at the finish line. We are more than conquerors. In fact, as he says there in verse uh, 30, we've already been, as far as the mind of God is concerned, glorified. We're seated right now in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're conquerors. Just to bring in a little place here, but back in chapter 5 again, we brought this out this morning. Not only do we conquer, but in fact, because of our standing in Christ, we can even glory in these things. Again, that would be a view that can be seen. A view that can be noted. Now, again, we turn the other angle a little bit differently or turn it and we look at another angle. Then there would be something else. But at this point, as I'm saying in verse five, chapter 5 and verse 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. You know, a conqueror glories in the marching on type of a thing, doesn't he? We can glory in these things. Why? Because we know what the outcome is. We know what they're doing for us. They're creating for us a better world for us that is to come. Now, in looking at that, is it all this our strength? I mean, are we so powerful that we can overcome tribulation and distress that it will never take away Christ? Is is this enabled by us? The answer, of course, is no. Notice what it is. It is the very love of Christ itself. Notice again, verse 37, the last phrase there. We are more than, well, that's only one phrase. We're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. I want you to notice something there. That is in the past tense. It's not He's loving us or that He loves in the present and continual sense, but it's the past tense. He loved us. That doesn't mean He doesn't continue to love us. He does. But He did love us in the past tense. And that's why we are conquerors. Because He loved us. And that love that He had for us is what sent Him to the cross. To finish the work. To do that work of that high priest that was prefigured there in the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus this evening which we read. And so the love of Christ, brethren, is what enables us to be more than conquerors. The very thing, now think about this, this is the very thing that won't even separate us. These things here, the tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the peril and the sword. And verse 36, the prophecy of it. These are the things that men would think would separate us from the love of Christ. He's telling us, no, these are the very things that make us conquer in these things. Rather than separating us from His love, they enable us to conquer all things. Did you note that when we were reading? I thought that was kind of neat. This doesn't separate us. It gives us the grace and the strength and the power to do away with these things and to vanquish them as true conquerors. Here again, that's why the love of Christ is an important aspect. And that's why Paul says, for instance, over in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, this is why he prays the prayer that he does. Remember his prayer in chapter 3 of Ephesians? 
He tells us in beginning in verse 16 that he would grant, this is he's praying here, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, here it is, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Why, what would be one of the reasons why we should know more of the love of Christ? Because that is the very thing that causes us to be more than conquerors. Here again, why assurance of grace makes the walk so much easier. If we have assurance of God's love towards us, we can face anything, can't we? If I know that heaven is my home, and one day I am going there, and I have been loved by God from all eternity, that He has done those things in verses 28 through 34 for me, then when trials, tribulation, persecutions come, I'll conquer them. Not be swallowed up in them. And this is why we get into what we do in verse 38. For I am persuaded, Paul says. He was assured of these things. He leaves the theology and the practicality, as it were, for a moment and gets very personal here. He doesn't say, for we know, for we are persuaded. But he says, I am persuaded. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here it is. We're persuaded, Paul was. And so should we. So these words express Paul's assurance and the persuasions of God's love. Notice in uh, another way of saying it, in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the son, faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Not loved us, and gave himself for us. Theologically, that's true. But Paul makes it personal here, doesn't he? He loved me and gave himself for me. That's personal persuasion, isn't it? Paul says again in one of his, in the epistle to Timothy, he says, For which cause I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I didn't tell you the passage, but it's first Tim, Second Timothy 1, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So Paul here, he tells us he's persuaded of this fact. And then he begins to list again several things to demonstrate that nothing shall remove us from God's love. 
He starts out with him, and he ends with us in verse 39. Well, will death? No. Will life? No. Will angels? No. Good or bad. Principalities or powers, whether they are looked at as civil or whether they're looked at as angelic, doesn't matter. Will they do it? No. Well, how about something in the future? No. How about things present going going on now? No. Height, depth, or any other creature? No. 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 Nothing. How more sure, brethren, should we be then of this great truth? This great enabling truth of conquering in the midst of trials and adversities. Well, we can spend the remainder then applying this to us tonight. Well, let me ask you. Do we at times, because of such things as tribulations and distress and persecutions, life, death, angels, those sort of things, do we doubt God's love upon us? Well, if so, we need to take a fresh look again at the great benefits and the great privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. Paul talks about again in verse chapter 8, verse seven, beginning in verse 17, that if we're going to reign with Him, we're going to suffer. There's going to be great trials upon the Christian. That's true, it's lax today because we don't have the type of government that Paul had in his day. But again, we all still face persecutions and trials. Yea, all that will of God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, the Scripture says. While it may not be in the same measure we do have our trials and adversities just like the first, Christ, first century Christian. So if we're going to reign with Him, then we must suffer. Well, these are the kinds of truths, brethren, that need to be under our belt so that we can face these things. And we need to take a look. If we're doubting all of this, we're getting our little self-pity thing, licking our own wounds, we need to stop that and go back to these great truths. That He has loved us. He's predestinated us. He's called us. He's justified us. He's also glorified us. Nothing shall be charged against His elect any longer. If we are in Christ Jesus, then we are justified. And all those things. These are the things that need to be in our pockets. Walking around in this world. Now, do we deserve God's love? Well, I hope no one here this evening, if they've read anything of the Bible, would have to say, would say, yeah, I think I deserve God's love. No, we do not, as a matter of fact. We deserve nothing but His hatred and His wrath. But, this is not the grounds of His love. Let me repeat that. Do we deserve God's love? The answer, of course, is no. But that is not the grounds of His love towards us, whether we deserved it or not. So we're not to look at ourselves and say, Oh, I fell here, I fell there, but I'm pretty good over here. And I'm not too bad over there in this area of my life. That's not why God loves us, brethren. He loves us because of His own sovereign will. So there again is another reason as to why the love of Christ will never be diminished from us. Because it's not based on anything in us or about us. And so the question is then, do we have God's love? 
Well, according to all the great things wrought by Christ as we see in this chapter, chapter, we see we do, don't we, believer? So if we doubt these things, then let's go back and refresh our minds with these things here. Secondly, let us notice the context of these words, that is, from verses 35 through 39. Notice the context of this great passage. These things that happen to us, that is, regarding these things of trials and adversity, do so, notice this, within the, within the framework of us being in a justified state. In other words, we won't know of God's love for us apart from the fact that He's justified us. He's declared us righteous. And so, that's what Paul is dealing here with, is these theological truths. And it is within that framework that Paul presents this stuff to us. So, here again, in the midst of of dangers and trials and adversities, these are the kind of truths that gird up our minds in the midst of trials. So, these doctrines here aren't just for the theologians to ponder and for pastors to preach These are doctrines are for all of us. Remember, Paul is writing not to the pastors at Rome and certainly not the Pope of Rome. He is writing who? The saints at Rome. The poor, humbled believers called in Christ Jesus. And it is to those working class folks, some of them slaves, that he tells these great truths too. And we ought to be ashamed of ourselves if we're having a hard time understanding them. When first century slaves can do it. They can put the effort forth and come to an understanding of the great doctrines of predestination and election and the atonement and justification and sanctification and understanding something of the love of God. Shame on us with all of our so-called knowledge if we cannot apply ourselves to gain some truths and application from these things. And I say that even under I understand that all knowledge comes from above. But if we're going to get any of that above knowledge, it won't come apart from diligent search, will it? Read Proverbs 2 and 3. But the point here is these are the things that buttress us. They are the things that fortify us in times of affliction. Thirdly, our security in God's love and in Christ's love is not our faithfulness, but God's great promises founded upon His eternal decree and covenant. He, as again, as I said earlier, He doesn't love us because we're so lovable. Because that ain't so. It's just not so. He did not set His great love upon us because there were more of us. That's not true either. He didn't set His love upon us because we were better than others. That's not true either. He didn't set His love upon us because He saw that we were going to love Him back. Because He first loved us. And that's why we love Him. It is because He willed to do it. And brethren, the very ground of our assurance in Christ's love is not our faithfulness. It's God's. 
How many Christians struggle in the area of assurance and grace because they fail to see this point? They look to their works and deeds for their grounds of acceptance with God. That will never do. Ever. Never. It's true, our obedience manifests God's love to us, but it is never the grounds. And when we put these things and mix them up, we're going to be miserable Christians, every one of us, if we have a concern in these things. Fourthly, and this is just a quote from Hodge, I thought was very good. He says, "How I wish I could have said it. How wonderful, how glorious, how secure is the gospel. Those who are in Christ Jesus are so secure as the love of God, the merit, powers, and intercession of Christ can make them. They are hedged around with mercy. They are enclosed in the arms of everlasting love. Thus then, brethren, with the doctrine revealed in verse 29 through 34, the practicality of verses 35 through 39, is there a chance that it won't work out for our good? The answer is, of course not. We've got a wall of theology here and a wall of practicality on this side. And all the trials and adversities won't be able to scale those walls and overcome us. Why? Because we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. This is good stuff. Not because I'm preaching it. This is the Bible. This is the stuff that Christians grow on. This is the stuff that we need to hear. But it is not the stuff to give us a carnal security in our laziness or in our sins. Don't think all is well, my friend. If this doesn't move you to holiness, rather it moves you to carelessness. Well, I'm one of the elect. He's died for me. I know I can never perish. He loves me. What can separate me? So I'll just go out and have my fun. I know I'm going to make it in the end anyway. That is not the teaching we are presenting tonight. The furthest thing from it. Paul doesn't deal with justification in that matter either, does he? What? Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. What shall we sin when we know all these great truths and the eternal security of the believer and the love that we have from God towards us is everlasting that we should play with that as if it made no difference in our walk? Of course not. One last passage before I go to the application to the sinner. You want to know about God's love towards it. Here is an amazing passage. Look in John 17. When we think about God's love to us, of course, it's beyond, I mean, it's an infinite thing, so finite noodles like ourselves can't comprehend it, but he does give us some hints that we can see something of it. So we can comprehend somewhat of this, and he gives us a comparison of it. Look in John 17, verse 23. Here Jesus is praying to the Father. So this is Jesus' words here in his prayer to his heavenly Father. He says, and he's speaking of this union that we have with Christ in verse 21. 
that all that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me there is a union because we're believers in him that sort of thing verse 23 I and them and thou and me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them here's the comparison as thou hast loved me. When we think of God's love to His Son, we think, that is a love that is everlasting. When we think of the eternal three getting together and knowing all that they know in regards to themselves and that stuff I just don't understand in and of itself, we think of, wow, this is that has to be pure, holy love that exists between the Father and the Son. We see something of that perhaps in Proverbs chapter 8. But that same love that the Father had towards His Son, Jesus says, we've, He's had it towards us. Look at that again. That the world may know, and God's people need to know it too, don't they? That thou hast sent me and hast loved them, that is the believer, as thou hast loved me. As you love me, you have loved your children of God. What an amazing fact, isn't it? That I stand in the same relation of love that his son does towards the father. And then last, though, let me turn to the sinner here this evening. The only hope of pardon from your sins lies not in your powers, but in these gospel truths that we've been preaching tonight. Your hope of heaven and knowing of the love of God in an experimental way rests not on the obedience of yourself, but upon the obedience of Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His intercession. So you must trust in Christ. Receive Him. If so, if you do receive Him, then you stand before God justified. You stand before God pardoned, clothed in Christ's righteousness. And then you'll be able to know something of what we're saying here this evening. Of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you'll never be separated from it. Never. Not how bad it is at home, not how bad it is at work, not how your brethren treat you. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And so may God give you this evening grace to repent, grace to turn from sin and to believe this glorious gospel of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Confess Him before men, following Him in baptism, and being obedient to His Word. That's what's demanded. These things do not save, but Christ saves. Trust Him even tonight. You young folks, listen to me. If you're not a believer, this is stuff to believe. If you're a skeptic tonight, let me assure you, this is stuff that's worthy of all acceptation. Away with your philosophical ideas and submit to the gospel. Don't be like a Jew and don't be like a Gentile. Be like one of those who are called, who find Jesus Christ, the power of God, unto salvation.